following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Well, have you ever heard of uh, something called the flannel graph effect? Uh, of course you haven't, because I just made that term up on Friday. If you uh, remember when, uh, to your childhood, for all of us in the room at least who were, are old enough to remember flannel graphs, a flannel graph was a, a board... I found this online here, was a board that was covered in a flannel-like uh, fabric or felt-like fabric. I don't remember what it was. And uh, you had these little cut-out pictures of typically a Bible characters that had some special backing that when you put it on the, the flannel graph board, it stuck. Cornerstone actually owned a flannel graph board back in the day. I think we finally got rid of it, or maybe we didn't. I don't know. But it's somewhere in our inventory of things we possess. But that, that was flannel graph. And as I was thinking about this week, uh, back to my childhood, I could not even begin to guess how many Sunday school lessons I have sat through in my uh, growing up years in church that the flannel graph was like the primary teaching tool uh, of our church, at least for our children's program. And flannel graphs are fine. They, they don't, they're not necessarily good or bad in and of themselves, but I'm coining this term, the flannel graph effect, to define what I would say is at least one negative component of using them, and that is that they tend to cause us to view Bible stories in this encapsulated, disjointed kind of way. And let me just talk that out for a moment. By encapsulated, what I mean is simply that we begin to view the stories as if there's really nothing before them and really nothing after, as if they are the entire story. So, you know, the story of the three little pigs is an encapsulated story, right? There's no, nothing before the three little pigs. There wasn't a fourth pig later added we don't know about. It's an encapsulated story. It's all there is, this one little thing. And so we, we see, uh, tend to see these Bible stories in that way too because of how they were taught to us as children. Not only that, then because they're encapsulated, they become disjointed, meaning we don't see how they connect into the next story or this story or what came before or what came after. And so we end up with this mishmash of ideas about all these various stories and scenes that we see here in the Bible, particularly particularly the ones we see about Jesus as laid out in the Gospels. And even as we grow older, and even as we continue to grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures and in our knowledge of Christ, for some reason it becomes really, really hard for us to connect all those stories together in some way that makes them appear to be one larger story. Well, that flannel graph effect, I think, or I fear, is going to greatly impact many of us in this room this morning as we come to this particular story that we're looking at today. Because the story I read here in Mark chapter 4 is one of those stories that probably, if you grew up in church at all, it doesn't even matter what kind of church, if you grew up in church at all, it's the kind of story you probably know pretty well. This amazing story of, of how Jesus could calm the sea with a word. And I would say to us that even though I think many of us think we know it well, I sincerely doubt that many of us have thought through the significance of this story in any kind of way that matches what Mark is trying to do. And so what I want to ask you to this morning as best you can is to simply throw away everything you have ever heard or thought about this particular story and as best we can to come back to it now with new eyes, with fresh eyes, and read it again within the larger context of what 
Mark is trying to do here. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the flannel graph story. Right? I'm going to walk through it again, not with flannel graph things on the screen, don't worry. But we're going to just work through it again and then talk about what the real significance of the story is. It, he begins in verse 35 by saying that on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. What day are we looking at? We're looking at the same day where Jesus has just been teaching a number of parables on what subject class? Kingdom of God, thank you. Kingdom of God, like three of you. Kingdom of God. He's been in Mark 4, verses 1 to 34. That is really discouraging. Mark 4, verses 1 to 34, teaching in public all these parables about what the kingdom of God is going to be. And the reason he's doing this is because that has been his message since he showed up on the scene. He came proclaiming this message that, that the time is at hand, that the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Remember that? And the problem I said to you all along is that the people who are listening to that, they don't understand what that means. They have this vision of what the kingdom is going to be like, what this return of God's rule and reign is going to be like, but their vision is all wrong. And so Jesus, through those parables, is helping them understand. Here's what the rule and reign of God is really going to be like. Here's how it's going to return. Here's what it's going to do. And so he's been talking about the kingdom of God. That's what's been going on this day. The evening has now come, and he wants to go across to the other side. And since he's with a group of fishermen, they have boats available. He's been sitting in one as he's been teaching. And so they get in the boat and go off. I was looking online just to give you some sense, though, as you read the story so that Remember, I've told you one of my goals is to help the Gospels come alive to you. So I've been trying to, throughout our, our study of Mark, do things, show you things to help that. And I found a picture of a first century boat just to give you some concept of what it would have looked like. It was about 27 feet long. So that's not quite as long as the front of the stage here, but pretty, pretty close. It's about 27 feet long, uh, about 8 feet wide, about 4 feet deep. So it was pretty shallow, but it was good for fishing, particularly in shallow waters. This was discovered when, uh, back in the 70s, there was a drought there in Israel, and the Sea of Galilee shrunk, okay? It got smaller, and when it did, it pulled back, and they found this wreckage preserved in a silt flow all these years, 2,000 years it's been sitting there, and so they pulled it out and, and, and preserved it, and now it's on a display in a museum. Here's what it would have looked like, something like this, at the time it was in use. It had a mast, we know that. Uh, it had probably some storage, some things like that. This is the kind of boat that Jesus is in. Not this one exactly, just to be clear. But this is the kind of boat that Jesus is in here on the Sea of Galilee. And as he goes out, I want you to also keep in mind that he's just not out with like guys like me who don't know anything about boats. He's out with a bunch of guys who are seasoned fishermen, right? Seasoned sailors, and not just that they're seasoned, they're, they're seasoned to this particular body of water. They have been fishermen on the Sea of Galilee probably their entire lives, and so they know this water well, and yet something is about to happen that is unlike what they are used to. He says there in verse 37 that a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And just stop and, and stop and think about this for a moment. Certainly, certainly this isn't the first storm they've been in. <laughs> I mean, if your whole living is made on the water, and you're a fisherman by trade, then there is, and you don't have Doppler radar, then certainly you have been caught before out at sea in a storm. 
In fact, we know of at least one other time that they run into a storm here in the Gospels, and we're going to read about it in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. Uh, Jesus has sent them across the sea, and the wind is picked up, and the waves are rough, and they're having a really hard time getting forward or making any progress. This is when Jesus comes and walks on the sea to meet them. But in that particular scene, as rough as the waves are, as bad as the wind is, no one's panicking. They're just having a hard time making progress. They're, they're, they're making it, but they're having a really hard time. This is something more than that. Mark describes it here as a great windstorm. He says that it's so bad, the seas are so rough, that the boat is filling with water. And if you look ahead to the question that they ask Jesus here in verse 38, it is clear to you that the disciples believe that they're about to die. Now, I, I'm not a sailor, but many of you are. <laughs> if your captain says, hey, everybody, get out of the boat, we're about to die, it's probably bad, right? Okay, <laughs> It's probably bad when the guys who know the most about the water are saying this is the end. And so this is how they're feeling. And, and, and what is Jesus doing in this? He's sleeping in the stern of the boat. And for all of us land lovers, that's the back, okay? He's in the back of the boat where they probably kept the gear, the nets, the things like that. In fact, the cushion he's using for a pillow may have very well been like a sandbag that's used as ballast in these kind of fishing boats. And so, so that could be the case, or maybe there's something else. But he's back there. He's asleep. And if I wanted to, I could spend some time just talking about the great picture of trust in God that Jesus is in the midst of this. I mean, just consider that just for a, a brief moment that here he is fully trusting that that the father is not done with him yet therefore since the father is not done with him yet no storm can hurt him i've used this uh phrase before when i've talked about uh, my fear of flying something i'd heard years ago that you're invincible until god's done with you you've heard that before jesus is okay he knows it. God is not done with him. He knows that, that in this sense he is invincible, and so he doesn't even bother to wake up in the midst of the storm. And so, of course, his wonderful disciples do that for him. They shake him. They, they yell at him. They do something to, to wake him up, and they're saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And a couple quick observations on that question. First, as I've already pointed out, in this question you see that they genuinely believe that, that this is the end of this situation. That, that they're about to die. In fact, with the water filling the boat and the storm not subsiding, they believe that this is the very moment of death. We are perishing right now, okay? At this moment, we are perishing. It's not like in five minutes. It's not in ten minutes. It's this is it. There is no going back. Notice also that they think Jesus is included in this, that all of them are about to perish. We, Jesus, you, us, all of us, we are all about to die. Second, notice that in their desperation, their desperation is so great, their fear is so great that they question Jesus' love for them in the midst of this. Do you not care? Teacher, don't you love us enough to respond? How can you sleep in the middle of this? Why aren't you doing something? They take his sleep, they take his silence, they take his inactivity as an indication that he doesn't really care for them or really love them. And I know we would never do that, right? 
to take God's silence or God's seeming inactivity in the midst of our own struggles and problems to in any way, shape, or form indicate that he doesn't love us. We never accuse God of something like that, but, but they did. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he wakes up. He wakes up and he turns to the storm and to the sea and he rebukes them both saying, Peace, be still. Is that how you hear it? When you picture the story in your mind's eye, is that how you hear Jesus speak? Peace, be still. You see him as that emaciated, uh, long-haired man who's, who had his, the Tao Sassoon as a stylist, right? And he stands up and he's like, peace, be still. It's, it's funny to me that these words that Mark uses here, he, that he quotes from Jesus, are the same kinds of words that Jesus uses in Mark 1, Mark 3, and Mark 9 to speak to demons when he tells them to shut up. He's rebuking it. It's not peace, be still. It's more like peace, shut up. Like the man was just woken up from sleep by disciples who are accusing him of, of not caring about their lives. And his response is to the sea, shut up. I'm, I'm not even being facetious. Be quiet. Don't, don't, don't read this story ever again with this like, uh, a sense of calm on Jesus' part. He comes across here as angry. And I just again, again, remind you to have a right view of who Jesus is. He's not that effeminate guy that he's been painted to be by so many people. He's a first century Jewish carpenter. He's a man's man. He's got forearms like Popeye, I think. Like he's, he, is, he is not a person to be trifled with. It's, it's no wonder then that in the last verse you see that now the disciples are filled with fear again, but this time of Jesus, right? They woke him up. He's got power to calm the sea. He's clearly angry with the sea the way he rebukes it. And now they're like, whoa, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the seas obey him. Instantly, everything is quiet. And the winds and the sea obey him. And typically, folks, isn't this true? That typically when we read the story because of that, that uh, way we were taught in our childhood, when we read the story, we, we stop here. Our minds disengage at this specific point because we're amazed by Jesus' power over the wind and the sea. What an amazing miracle we think. He can speak and they obey him. And I, I think it's that flannel graph effect. Our, we're, we're trained to read these stories in an encapsulated, disjointed kind of way. Can I say something kind of to shock you about this story this morning? I don't think Jesus' power over the wind and sea is really the main point at all. In fact, I don't think Mark really wanted you to even stop there and pay much attention to it. It's important in the larger story, but, but it's not his most important point because if it was his most important point, he would have just simply stopped right there in verse 39 and moved on to the next story. He, he clearly doesn't do that. No, I've come to believe through my study that verse 40 is actually the primary point of this story because after calming the sea, Jesus asks two really important questions. Question number one was this, why are you so afraid? And I would pause and reflect on the fact that if this question was the only question Jesus asked, it would be a really dumb question. If this was the only one, it really wouldn't make any sense because the reason why they're so afraid is clear, <laughs> isn't it? They think they're going to die. If, if you are in their shoes and you think your death is, is at hand, 
It makes sense to us to understand their fear, and you would think Jesus would as well. He does. The the issue isn't just that they're afraid, it's exactly why they're afraid, and that is revealed by the second question. Have you still no faith? Now, as I often do, let's pause. Faith in what? Or faith in whom is the question that we should be asking at this point. Because this is really the crux of the matter, I think, in Jesus' mind and in Mark's telling of this story. What exactly are they supposed to have faith in? What, What faith is Jesus questioning here? And I think that most of us, when we first hear that question, would probably give just an instant answer of, well, it's faith in Jesus. They, they, don't clear, they clearly don't have faith in Jesus. Maybe they don't believe that he's powerful enough to, to save them, that, you know, that he somehow is, is unable, unwilling to do this. I, I'm sorry, I don't think that's right. Because if, if they don't have faith in Jesus that he's able to save them from the situation, why are they waking him up? I mean, you think about that for a moment. If if he's not able to save them, well, why don't we let him sleep and die in peace, right? I mean, just why make him go through the horror of the next few minutes with the rest of us as we drown in, in full conscious uh, awareness of our situation? Why not just let him die peacefully? Maybe they don't love him. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. Now, I, I think the reason they are waking him up is because they do believe that he can do something about it. They've seen him act before. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him cast out demons. They have watched some amazing, amazing miracles. So I think they very much believe in Jesus and his power. That's why they're waking him up, I would argue. So if they have faith in him and his power, what faith exactly are they not possessing or not believing at this particular moment? Where folks, this is This is where context matters, right? These are the moments when you really have to stop and take that bigger picture look at what Mark is doing, what the Spirit is doing as he's communicating truth here. This is where that negative component of the flannel graph effect becomes very obvious because if you read the story in this encapsulated, uh, disjointed kind of way, you just end up being lost. But if we step back and take a larger view, I think you you get to see what Mark is really doing here. What's the context of this story? What has Mark been talking about? What has Jesus been talking about, class? Kingdom of God. He he has spent his time since the beginning of his ministry proclaiming that the kingdom of God, the return of God's rule and reign into this rebellious world, is at hand. And specifically, it's at hand in who? In him. He is the one bringing back the kingdom. And throughout the last 34 verses, he's been teaching on it of how it's going to be. It's going to be like a mustard seed. It's going to be like a man sowing seed. It's going to be like a, a farmer who plants and doesn't know how it happens, but it happens. He's been talking all about this. And here is the question that the disciples are facing, whether or not they fully realize it at the moment. Will God's kingdom overcome the chaos of this world or be overcome by it? I mean, Jesus has been proclaiming that this kingdom has come. It's going to be like this, it's going to be like that, and yet here we are at a moment when the chaos of the sin-ridden world would seemingly be ready to put all of God's plan to an end. And the disciples in their desperation and fear apparently believe 
that there is a very real chance that these forces of chaos will overcome God's plan to reestablish his kingdom. They think they're all going to die. Including Jesus, all of them are going to die, that God's plan is going to be thwarted by a storm. And, and I just, I've shared this before, forgive me, I'm going to do it again. Michael Frost, an uh, Australian pastor, spoke at uh, the conference that we went to in March. He, he did this last year. He's just got the best way of putting this. He's like, just, just go with the disciples for a moment in this thought and just imagine that they're right. Imagine that the storm really can overcome God's plan. And so everybody drowns except for one disciple who like doggy paddles to shore, right? And he gets to shore and he, he goes on shore and he goes on to live a nice full life. And when he's an old man, one day he's sitting at his house and his grandchild crawls up into his lap and is like, Grandpa, when you were young, did anything exciting ever happen to you? Oh, yes, yes, something very exciting happened. What, what was it, Grandpa? Oh, I met the Messiah. You met the Messiah? Oh, yes, I met the Son of the living God. Well, what was he like, Grandpa? Oh, he was amazing. He, he revealed the truth of the ages. He ushered in God's kingdom. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He was God. God come in human form. Well, what happened to him, Grandpa? Well, he died in a boating accident. We, we see the absurdity of that situation when you think of it in that way, that somehow the, the one who is bringing God's kingdom back to earth can be killed in a boating accident? This is exactly what they're fearing at this moment, that everything God had purposed and planned since the beginning of time is about to be undone by a windstorm. They lack faith. Not necessarily in Jesus and in Jesus' power, though I'm not, maybe there's a little bit of that there too. No, their main lack of faith is in God himself and in his plan to reestablish his kingdom through his son. That's their main lack of faith. Even though they've heard the message of the kingdom over and over and over again, the story reveals that they don't really trust the king and his ability to carry out the plan. Do you understand that? They don't trust the king. It's not that they just don't trust Jesus and his ability to, to calm waves. They don't trust the king that God's eternal plan will be fulfilled. They don't have that kind of faith yet. And so in calming the sea like he does, Jesus makes a very vivid point to them. The forces of chaos cannot overcome this king or this kingdom. I don't care what force you're looking at. When he says that the kingdom of hand, he means it, that the kingdom is at hand. That the rule and reign of God in this rebellious world, that sin-ridden world where chaos does in fact reign, it is no match for this king. And he will extend his kingdom into every sphere. Every sphere of human existence. Folks, here we are like 2,000 years later, right? <laughs> we struggle believing the same message today. Because we too all live in a world of chaos, do we not? A world that's filled with disasters, both personal and, and public. Wars, troubles, fears. Right now in your life, there might be so many things that feel like chaos surrounding you at this time. Because sin's effect on this world has not subsided nor its effect on our heart in the midst of all of this sometimes we cry out to god and we're like why are you silent why 
don't you care about us? Don't you care about me? In the, why, why don't you answer? Why are you asleep? We cry these same exact things to God in our desperation and in our fear. What are we revealing about our own hearts? That we don't truly believe that this king and his kingdom will win. We're, we're revealing our own doubt and our own lack of faith that the forces of chaos can somehow thwart the eternal plan of God for us and for his church and for this world. Why are we so afraid? Why do we still have no faith? Do you really believe that God's sovereign plan established before time began is unmovable? Do you believe that you are, in fact, invincible until God is done with you? Don't go out and act on that too much, though. Be careful. But it's true. It is true. You are invincible until God is done with you. You just don't know when that is, so be careful. If he loved us enough to send his son to die for us, why do we struggle believing that he loves us enough to carry us through even the darkest of times? The disciples are spared from the storm only to show the greatness and glory of Jesus. But without having gone through it, they would have understood none of that. There is no chaos in this world over which he has not conquered. Folks, Jesus is the king over chaos. You understand that? I don't care what bad things happen to you personally, what bad things happen to your family, what bad things happen to our country, our church, or any other sphere you can think of. Jesus is king over all chaos, and there is nothing in this world that will thwart his plans. There is nothing in our lives that will thwart his plans. Nothing. His kingdom is coming. His rule and reign will extend into every sphere and into every realm and it is growing and spreading like a mustard seed today. And while we can't always see it and while we don't always understand how it grows, we rest assured knowing that the king and his kingdom are never overcome by anything. And so I just say to you very personally and very pastorally, I don't know what storms are in your life. I really, I know a few of your storms, but not many. Don't lose sight of the king. Don't forget the kingdom that he has guaranteed will succeed. Don't place your faith in anything other than him and in his plan for you. No matter what, I urge you this morning. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus, it is so easy for us in the midst of our own chaos, to take our eyes off of you and somehow in those moments to believe that the chaos we find ourselves in is greater than you, that your plans for us will be somehow thwarted by them. This is true of us as individuals, as, as couples, as parents, as families, as a church, as a nation. And yet we see a very clear example here that your plan cannot be thwarted by anything this sin-ridden world has in it. There is no storm that can overcome that. What you have established will happen. Your kingdom will come regardless. And there is nothing that can stand against it, not even the gates of hell. Your church will be built. Your name will be known. You will be worshipped by all, one way or the other. 
And so Jesus, this morning, please, we ask you to forgive us for our own lack of faith. When those moments come and we cry out in our hearts, if not with our mouths, why are you silent? Forgive us. Forgive us for doubting that those plans of yours will come to pass. Forgive us for doubting your goodness and your care and your love for us. We are short-sighted, weak, foolish people. We take comfort in the fact that you saved us despite all of those things, that your love for us was greater ever than we could understand. And I pray, Father, that as we live out this life now in, the, in light of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, as those storms come, will you show us your kingdom? Will you help us to look at you, the King, and take our eyes off of you? Not at all. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for conquering chaos. Your kingdom is growing today. We look forward to the day when it covers all and chaos and death and evil and sin is all defeated forevermore and we get to live in your perfect kingdom for all eternity. Until then, Father, help us to believe. In Jesus' name.